Hello, I'm Harlan Krumholtz, and welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. We're excited to have on today Andrea Downing, a community data organizer and e-patient hacker. In 2005, Andrea was diagnosed with a BRCA1 mutation, a mutation that put her at an estimated lifetime risk of 70% for developing breast cancer and 40% for developing ovarian cancer. Frustrated with her options, she began a blog, Brave Bosom, to write about her experiences. She's also joined the BRCA Sisterhood Facebook support group, where she found friendship and encouragement. In 2013, Andrea expanded her activism to the courtroom by serving as media spokesperson for one of the plaintiffs in the Association of Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics, in which the Supreme Court ruled that BRCA and all other human genes in their natural DNA form could not be patented. Since then, Andrea has co-founded the Light Collective, a nonprofit dedicated to improving security and governance practices for peer support groups on social media. Her activism currently involves solving data breaches on Facebook to ensure that patient groups like her own can grow and continue without endangering patients' health data. Andrea, so glad to have you here today. Welcome. So happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> so let, let's go back to the beginning because I think one thing is that would be useful is to get a perspective on who you are and and what your journey's been. So if we go back to the beginning, why'd you get tested for, for BRCA1? What was, what was going on in your life at that time? That's a great question. So I was in transition. This was back in 2005 before people were talking about BRCA and, and before Angelina Jolie, before a lot of things that are, are widely um, talked about when, when we think about BRCA mutations and hereditary cancer. Um, I was 25 years old at the time and moving across the country with my then boyfriend, now husband, and I stopped in Austin, Texas, where I grew up. And my, my mother, um, I think it's important to kind of think about like our history. I was like a really clear cut case where um, my great grandmother, my grandmother and my mother all had cancer and some of my earliest memories were not knowing whether my mother was going to live or die. So uh, I was very fortunate at the time to have her go into, after her second cancer diagnosis, into uh, genetic counseling and testing. And then that's when they pulled me in. And so up till then, had you had any health problems or any interactions with the healthcare system? No, I mean, aside from uh, going to my annual doctor's appointment, my physical, I was, I was doing great. And, you know, I think this was the start of not only a crash course in understanding how <laughs> complicated the healthcare system was, but how little people understood back then about BRCA and how isolating that was going to be for me for about six years. It was, it was really hard. And, uh, and I think it's part of why I do what I do. Looking back, did it did it feel like informed consent? I mean, it's a big decision to to get genetic screening. I mean, in, in your case, it provided important information. But I'm just curious because, in the end, you became sort of very engaged and 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 assertive about your care. But at that time, probably wasn't on your mind. I mean, it sounds almost like you know you were brought in and someone said you should have this test, and 
and you went along with it. Was it was that what it was like, or or did you get a lot of information and make a purposeful choice? I did get a lot of information at the time, and um, I think what what we often fail to recognize when people go through genetic testing is that our understanding of genetics changes over time, and so does our relationship to identity and the information that we have as we navigate decisions over many years. So quite often we think of this one transactional uh, appointment with a genetic counselor, you are given, you know, your options and then you're off to the races. Well, for me, what that looked like was 10 years of then struggling through aggressive surveillance, navigating overwhelming decisions about surgeries. And, and we fail to recognize the long-term path that previvors or people like me uh, that that we take in order to to be informed. So I think of informed consent as as something that's almost like transactional, and and you know it, it implies that you can know the future. Well, we really can't. I don't regret it at all, but you know I I never would have expected some of the adventures I've been on or things that I faced because of BRCA. So, so give me a little bit of a sense of it, because you, you mentioned that it felt isolating, and that, that's, a, that's an interesting word. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that the news, which I think I would think could be disturbing and unsettling and destabilizing, I mean, there's a lot that's in that because there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and, and yet you're being given information about risk. But well, what was the part that was isolating? How did you experience that? Well, you have to keep in mind back then, I was 25 years old and did not know the first thing about genetics or data sharing, which is something that I'm incredibly passionate about now, 14 years later. And isolating for me felt like not even having friends or family who understood what I was going through. You know, being told that after seeing your family go through cancer, that your future has cancer is, is not an easy, easy thing to come to terms with. And, you know, part of my experience has been finding others who share this identity of being a previvor, somebody who, and by the way, I didn't even know what that word was until six years into my path. And it was an incredibly empowering experience to have other people who share this, this identity of facing their future. Where'd that word come from? Great question. It's um, it's a term. So I believe there's a wonderful organization called Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. I think it came out of a message board, huh. like back in 1999, a long time ago. But I didn't hear that word until, uh, I guess, 2010, 2011. And and you know what it means is a survivor of a genetic predisposition, somebody who has tested positive for a a genetic mutation that is dangerous has a, you know, strong permutation that can can cause harm uh, or is deleterious. And um, I've, in my experiences, met other previvors in the Huntington's community, uh, previvors who are uh, carrying uh, genetic predispositions to other things as well. And it's incredible to to find this shared um, understanding with them of what what they're going through. So was it that uh, that word? Because that's also interesting that that word was so empowering for you. Was it a, because it gave you a sense that there was a community that to which you belonged that 
that there was a label that that encompassed the experience that that you were having. I mean, that, that's a it's really interesting and, and powerful that 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 word would have hold such meaning for you. Yeah, I mean, I would say that a lot of this for me goes back to identity. And when you think about identity, I didn't have a sense of identity as somebody who tested positive for a BRCA mutation before that. And once I found that identity, I could search for other previvors on social media. I could search for people who were also going through the same thing. And when I found them, oh my gosh, that was the first step to kind of this path I'm on now where I want other people to take uh, and be able to preserve their identity and take pride in their identity, no matter what it is. I, I think it's important for us to see how, as the stewards of identity, we can do amazing things and shape our own futures as patients and communities. What was a day like when you heard that you, were, that you had this mutation, that the test result came back? What, what was that day like? Because... It, you know, I imagine that that was a very stark and startling and, and even isolating experience in the sense that all of a sudden your identity was being transformed from healthy, young, carefree, albeit cognizant of your family history, but still, you know, as to someone who's actually carrying a mutation. I mean, what what was that like? You know, I will I will be perfectly honest. It was nothing short of traumatic and in in some very... Um, difficult ways because, you know, I think women who are previvors, women and men, because hereditary cancer mutations affect men too, uh, we, we face this future and we're not quite sick. We're not quite well. And people don't understand. They're like, well, but you don't have cancer. And, and so there's not really a sense of, well, what are you going to do about it? What are, what, what are the things that I can do to explain my situation to others, explain my identity? Um, and I'll never forget it. I was just, when I got my test results, uh, I did go through genetic counseling, but I was, I, w- I got a phone call and I was sitting on this dusty box in my mom's garage and I never felt more alone in my life. I was, I was, um, I was sitting on the box and I felt like I had just been given a death sentence. And I knew having seen what my mother had faced, what I could be going through. And that to me, I think, um, took a lot of time to really process and, and to come to terms with. But here I am 14 years later and I'm okay. No, no, no. You're, you're amazing. But I, I think it's worth unpacking it just a little bit more because I'm just trying to think, is it was it an inevitable an inevitable consequence? Was it an inevitable consequence of the test result that you were going to have that feeling that there was nothing that could have been done to prevent you from experiencing that because it was a you know an unfortunate result. it was a it was a startling and and difficult result or or did the healthcare system somehow um, not adequately prepare you or, or not adequately support you through this? Do you, think, do you think this is something that could have been mitigated in some ways, the way that you experienced it? I think so often we focus on that moment or that 
uh, initial experience or how do we give this information to people and prepare them? And to be honest, it implies that we can know the future. (laughs) And I think the way I think about this now is, no, the healthcare system has not prepared me and that's okay because our relationship with BRCA and our identity has evolved over time. And the only way it has evolved for me is through understanding and finding shared strength from my peers and knowledge and information that can help me navigate decisions. So what I'm hoping as we kind of think about the way the healthcare system engages with people who are navigating genetics or who are talking to prefibers is we often just think of that like decision of testing positive and there's so much like hand-wringing of you know, giving this information to people. Well, there's really, apart from giving people good evidence, good data to, from which to make informed decisions, there's, there's just not a lot of things today in the healthcare system that are supporting us. And what happens is we fall through the cracks. And so what do we do? We go to social media and support each other because we find that we're able to adapt with each other faster than we can really get answers from the healthcare system and access to, to the information and knowledge that we need. So what, what turns you to look to peers? I mean, you, you're getting this information, you're 25 years old. I assume that you were given some options or at least given some information at the time. What, what is it that activated you? Well, I think it started in 2012 and this was you know, first of all, I want to I want to say that when I when I first uh, I would say came out as a previvor and a BRCA mutation carrier, I decided to write a blog and be public, and that decision was really hard for me um, because I, I w- what happened <laughs> at the time was I was at a company and I was about to go into my mastectomy and I was seeking support. And I got laid off a few months before my mastectomy. And, and so there was a bad experience there unrelated to the healthcare system. But I started to ask myself, well, gosh, you know, this is about six years into my experience. I hadn't seen and honestly still do not see great options for people, pre-vivors seeking to prevent cancer beyond the, the aggressive screening and surveillance that we've gone through for many years. You know, the the options that we have haven't changed since I was 25. So for me, it was about realizing the only way we're going to have an effect on options is to get organized, to find ways to be a part of the solution, and to do things that are practical and meaningful to us as a community for people who have this shared identity. Whether you're a previvor or a cancer survivor, because there are many people in my community who come to our support groups uh, who are facing cancer diagnosis. And we're all in the same boat. What we want are better treatments, better options, and better ways to um, practically engage and chart our own destiny in ways that matter to us. But, but how did that happen for you? Um, the, I'm tr- and also, I'm, I'm, well, let me just start with that. I mean, how did you, what was the spark? I get it that you were at this low point, you're, you're facing this issue, you turn to others, but was there something that, that made you think that, that this is the direction to go? Was, I mean, did someone tell you? Did you discover it? And, and then 
Yeah. How did that happen? I just started writing. And as I thought about the bigger picture and started writing, that was about the time that I, I saw this case that was then in federal court, um, which eventually went to the Supreme Court on whether human genes can be patented. And as it turned out, the genes in question were BRCA and the company was the company that had done my genetic testing. And so what I started to realize was, oh my gosh, the patents on BRC were actually holding us back from cancer research. And there was all this like breast cancer awareness at the time. Like, you know, this is the height of pink ribbons, which is still a huge pervasive part of breast cancer culture that I hope to change. Um, we need to move beyond awareness into research that is meaningful and impactful to us. But as I, I started to learn about these patents and how they were impacting research, I started to realize, oh my gosh, there's a lot of hurdles we got to overcome in order to get there. So I started doing what I could, writing, being an activist, or what I like to call a bractivist. <laughs> and uh, that, got, that got me on this path of applying my passion for technology and data sharing to a very focused problem. Let me ask you another question that about the awareness thing. So you said, I hope to change the culture from the pink ribbon and awareness. Isn't awareness critical, though, to get, I mean, they're doing it to fundraise in addition to maybe encourage appropriate screening, but wh why do you think you need to change that? What, what's in that? Yes. Well, I, I guess my, my view of awareness is this. Awareness is very, very effective if we are raising awareness for the right things. And for every community, whether it's the rare disease community or, um, you know, the breast cancer community at large, there are ways to raise awareness for different things rather than just saying pink ribbons and having that culture of, you know, cause marketing and, and charity that just kind of goes into the ether. I think as a community, what I would like to do is change that dynamic and be able to affect the things that directly impact our own groups. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, that's great. Let me go to these patient groups because I think one critical part of your story is the degree to which you've been able to foster community and learn from others who are facing similar situations and help them learn from you. I mean, creating this, this collective wisdom. How did you find these groups and and were there many different kinds of groups? And what, what, what made you decide which groups to join? Or, or how did you find each other? Well, this was right around the same time I started my blog. I, I began connecting with other women that were blogging. And uh, there was this incredible advocate. Her name was Terry, and she's a good friend of mine who co-founded the BRCA Sisterhood on Facebook. Before that, it was part of a couple of smaller groups. and. Um, I, I was, I had different experiences in different groups. I think um, when you go to a support group on social media, some are really, really well run and they have reasons that they have grown and they have trust from their members and they, they are doing things for the right reasons. And then other groups, I think, can be um, kind of difficult to work with. And um, I think what, what, I learned is there's some amazing groups out there that are a lifeline for me. And that's why I became involved with the groups. I eventually became one of the moderators. And, um, you know, I think 
for women who are pre-vivors and survivors, we need these groups because they're lifelines when you're going through the trauma of testing positive for BRCA or, uh, you know, going through a cancer diagnosis. And what do you do? You go to a Facebook group because that's where you can find knowledge and, and peers who can help you validate or or ask the questions that you're trying to ask when you're engaging with the healthcare system. What kind of information do you find most useful in these kind of groups? Oh, gosh. It ranges from emotional support uh, when when you need to kind of explain, like, explain to people who understand and know, you know exactly what you're going through. Little things like, I am so sad that... Um, I am a <laughs> I am going through my surgery and I just got these blisters due to an allergic reaction and I'm I'm not sure what to do. Um, it, it can range from things like, well, you know, my doctor um, gave me this this referral and I'm really not sure if I should go to this or get a second opinion. A lot of it has to do with you know sharing and comparing some of the things we're told in the healthcare system. We have a very strict rule in our support group where we're not giving medical advice, but we're, we're seeking to share our own experiences and learn what other people have faced. So I think in that sense, we get a way to compare when people don't have access to genetic testing or genetic counseling, um, what, what they need and, and how to meet them where they are. Um, and then we have people who are in the groups who have you know, been to some of the best cancer centers in the country and can share and disseminate the knowledge that they've learned. Do you cap the number of people in the groups? Do, are they of a certain size or it can grow immensely large? It can grow immensely large. And I think what we've learned is as these groups grow, especially on Facebook, what's happened is they need the resources and support to sustain the groups. And they need training they need good practices in order to foster leadership within the group. But as, as moderators with no rights, no support, and literally cancer centers or healthcare system referring to the groups because there's no other place, we, we find ourselves increasingly needing to meet a need without support or resources. So that's kind of what I've been working on lately with the Light Collective our, our goal after a very interesting and scary year this last year is to um, help these moderators and community organizers shape the vision for their support groups. And if needed, because of the ongoing privacy problems with Facebook, many of them are seeking to declare their independence. But that takes a lot of work. And these groups have no funding, resources, or buying power. They just have expanding needs for groups that um, are are in a vulnerable position. But so do these groups break off so that they, I, I'm going to go back to the, are they of a certain size? And then is it that you're trying to make sure that the governance and support of these groups are, are all strong? I'm just trying to get how, how you're trying to help exactly. Well, in our initial project, so we got a project started with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Oh, that's great. And we were very thankful to them to help us think about what the needs of our own group were. 
Um, so back in March, we convened a summit of leaders and organizers within the hereditary cancer community who are moderating these group groups. And we brought in cybersecurity experts and leaders who um, have thought about informed consent and policy. But, but how, do you, how did you even identify all the people that were moderators and leaders? Oh, we all know each other. Wow. Think of us as tribes. <laughs> we're, we're highly, I, okay, let me take a step back. You're highly place. networked. So huh? yeah, I, I think people in the healthcare system don't quite realize how we all know each other today. Um, so, so on social media, you know, we have a highly organized network of hereditary cancer, pre-diversion survivors who have been doing this work for years. And as we've done it with, with one goal, we wanted people who were afraid and alone to feel less afraid and alone than we felt. And, and as we did that, we met the other leaders. We, we've known each other for a long time. We're like a village. We're like a city <laughs> of, of people who have led these groups and kind of serve the needs of these groups but are also overwhelmed. And the, the, I think the growth of the groups has lent to a need to sustain it in a different way that isn't happening today. Is, is, it, is it all on that, Facebook, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Well, there's, there's you know, groups across social media. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, uh -huh. across platforms. Um, you know, there, there are platforms out there like Inspire. Yep. Um, but, you know, behind that are the people who are organizing and supporting the groups. Some of them are part of formal nonprofit ad advocacy organizations. And then some of them just did it because they're really good at it and they're great leaders and they're doing it for the right reasons. There are other groups out there that are not doing things well or groups that are kind of using Facebook for nefarious purposes to um, share bad information and misinformation. So I think we have to take a step back as uh, leaders, not only in healthcare, but on social media and start thinking differently about how these leaders and organizers can be empowered to shape their own destiny with their communities. And, and how do these communities relate to their healthcare? So, you know, there's lots of information being exchanged here, and yet people also have clinicians, doctors and nurses who are, their, you know, the people to whom they are also receiving medical advice and, and seeking care. It, does, it, does it ever intersect? I mean, because it, it would seem to me that maybe a lot of doctors and nurses aren't even aware that this is going on in the background, and, and we're not necessarily all working in alignment that way, that, you know, there are two worlds that are separate. Do you, do you see them coming together, and how do they come together in your life? I do see them coming together. And in fact, I think they need to come together because um, if we don't do this the right way, if we don't think of ways to support and legitimize the work of these support groups who have created lifelines for people um, across many different diseases, um, I think what happens is they, they that we open up potentials for harm and misinformation. And at the same time, I think what, the, what I would love for the medical community to realize is these groups formed because the healthcare system did not meet our needs. And, you know, 
So for me, let me just translate back to what that looked like. Every six months, going to appointments of, of aggressive surveillance and, and feeling completely demoralized every time I went into those appointments facing my mortality. It was isolating. It wasn't, you know, the, the thing that I needed. Um, also going through my decisions for surgery. That, that was something that was incredibly isolating and traumatic for me. The only way I was able to turn it into an empowering experience was through peer support. And in fact, there's a whole body of research talking about the clinical efficacy of peer support. Um, I would, I, have you heard of Susanna Fox? Yes, 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 of course. So, so she started her career at Pew Research Center and has done a ton of work on the importance of peer support in healthcare. And, you know, so for example, I, I, I think she's done quite a bit of studies around young adults seeking information online um, in order to, you know, navigate their healthcare decisions. So what we did with our groups is we decided, okay, let's do like an IRB approved study with some mentors and clinicians to talk about how we're receiving and, and learning about information from our peers. And by the way, this isn't published yet, but um, we learned that 80% of people in our own groups are solely looking to Facebook support groups instead of outside sources on the internet for their knowledge about BRCA. Well, we need to empower that. We need to bring in the right experts. We need to share the right information and do so in a way that acknowledges that this is a good resource in healthcare and that it takes work and it takes mentorship and collaboration with clinicians that we trust in this community. Are there clinicians part of the community so that if people are passing around information that would be out of alignment with what yes. would be considered evidence? There are. Yeah. Yep. Um, one of uh, one of our uh, moderators is a trained physician, and I would also like to point out, like outside of the Facebook groups, what a good model looks like. Um, you know, I, I would say within the hereditary cancer community, we have a ton of clinicians who are engaging in the the Facebook groups to ask questions about papers or to share knowledge about the latest uh, research that has come out. Let's transition over to talk a little bit about these platforms, because I know that's something you're passionate about. And and on one hand, the platforms have enabled these groups to come together. On the other hand, you have uh, voiced concerns and have expressed the importance of privacy and trust in these processes. So so where are you now? What what are you what's your views on on the platforms and and what needs to be done? Well, that's a, it's, as you know, Harlan, kind of a loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I started out on this path because I wanted, I wanted with my peers to be able to find support, find pride in our identity. And right around last year, after Cambridge Analytica hit, I asked myself a simple question. And that question was, what are the privacy implications of having a support group on Facebook? And you have to keep in mind, like, the vast majority of patient advocacy organizations of support groups have gone to Facebook surely because of the network effect. 
it's it's just it it pales in comparison like any other platform any other message board all of them have gone to facebook because it's a one stop shop so you know asking this question i have this background in technology and i understand apis i understand some of the things that um kind of were coming out about cambridge analytica and how data was scraped and so I started looking under the hood. I looked at the developer platform. I looked at, um, you know, the fact that there's a user level API and separately there's a group API. And as I did all this research, I started to get very concerned. And what we found was Facebook's security and architecture for groups is really not safe. It, 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 it's a play. What we did was we found a, a vulnerability and we called it Sick Girl, strict inclusion criteria group reverse lookups. And through this process, I, I guess I, I tell people that I have become an accidental hacker, but now I'm on this path to um, white hat hacking and finding this passion for security research because I want the privacy of these groups to be protected. And we've done so much to try to get there. And unfortunately, Facebook has not met us um, at a place where we feel that the platform is worthy of our trust. After bringing these things to them, after being very transparent and wanting to fix them. So now I'm at a place where I'm I, I asking myself, what, what do we do next? Because many of these groups on Facebook are trapped. Um, they don't have options and they're seeking solutions in order to do the work they have to do in order to get off Facebook. That's where we are today. So, um, and what's your next step with this? Well, it's it's a it's a challenging thing because on one hand, the platform's enabling people to come together. On the other hand, the trust is being lost, and so um, it needs to be brokered. And I, I mean, I'm listening to you and thinking that, gosh, we've got to get through to them, and they have to be responsive because they have a responsibility and. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'll do what I can to help because I, I really think it's it's critically important. And and the fact that you all are connected, I mean, it, it's just – it's such a good example of the strength people can derive from from joint experiences and sharing and, and the kind of – ensuring that, that they're learning from each other. I mean, there's just no way to get the lessons of life that you guys have unless you've actually had the lived experience. And then to be able to contribute to – Others who are facing those challenges, you know, newly and are in a position of great vulnerability. It's just it's a gift that that the community is willing to provide back. And we have to be sure that it can be done within a safe environment where people can trust. I believe these trust deficits are, are, are just such a huge threat to communities because it can just shut them down. People can shut down if they're worried. And yet an open community, one that's within a safe environment, can provide such good let me, we're, we're really reaching the end here, and I just want to express my deep gratitude for, for you, your honesty, your forthrightness, the stories. Uh, it's just really, honestly, I find them so inspiring. And, and I don't give me greater determination to say, I mean, this is what the Never Delegate Understanding idea is about, which is that you guys are stepping forward and you yourself are stepping forward and trying to make it, it better and, and not, not just saying, tell me what to do, but, but being part of generating the knowledge for the future. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And uh, yeah, let's let's get to work. Let's do this. Yeah, we got a lot of work still to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Carballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks.